It's Tuesday, March 24th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. First, add this to your growing list of things you can no longer look forward to. The 2020 Olympics have been postponed, and this change will affect a lot more than your summer TV habits. Then, thanks to COVID-19, voting in the 2020 election just got a lot more complicated. We'll tell you about the efforts that could make it a bit easier for Americans to cast ballots. And finally, a hot delivery tip from one of our listeners. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Okay, the COVID-19 pandemic is a rapidly changing story with lots of moving parts. And we're going to help you sort out what exactly you need to know, starting with the three big developments of the day. To start, the International Olympics Committee isn't playing games. At least not this summer. That's what it announced today at a press conference. That's Mori Yoshiro, former prime minister of Japan and organizing committee president, saying after nearly seven years of preparation, they had no choice but to postpone the biggest sporting event in the world because of the pandemic. Remember, the Summer Olympics were supposed to kick off in Tokyo this July. And this would have been the first time athletes could compete in sports like karate and surfing. And it would have been a chance for the world to watch U.S. gymnast Simone Biles defend her gold medals. Now, this will all have to wait until next year. The IOC says the Games will happen, just not until summer 2021. So, how did we get here? For weeks, the IOC has been saying they weren't going to do this. Earlier this month, IOC President Thomas Bach told athletes to keep training for the Games. We uh, remain uh, very confident uh, with regard to the success of these uh, Olympic Games uh, Tokyo 2020. As recently as five days ago, though, the New York Times asked him if he was considering postponing the Games. He said it was too soon to make that call. Then this weekend, countries started backing out. Canada is the first country to announce a pullout of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Australia won't send its team to the Olympics this year, with athletes today told to prepare for the Games to be postponed for 12 months. Yesterday, the U.S. joined in, saying they also want to see the Games pushed back. This is what 11,000 athletes have spent their lives training for. So why did countries want to see this postponed? Olympic committees from around the world said that COVID-19 was getting in the way of their training. In the U.S., the two main training centers for the Olympics both shut down because of the pandemic. The head of Spain's Olympic committee said it was unfair to expect athletes to train when pools and gyms in his country and others were closing their doors. One thing that has made this decision so hard? Japan's economy is already struggling. One report says that canceling the games could cause Japan's GDP to drop by almost a percent and a half. More than half a million visitors were also supposed to fly in to enjoy the games, making the decision to move the date a really tough one. But it's not unprecedented. The Summer Olympics have been canceled just three times since the first modern Olympics in the late 1800s. And all of those cancellations happened because of World War I and World War II. That means this is the first time the Olympics have been disrupted since the 1940s. And there's a lot at stake here, financially, politically, and competitively. As for athletes and for the rest of us, they'll have to prioritize their health over the strength of their game. Our second headline today involves another way in which our country is changing as prisons start to get a little less crowded. 
For the past few days across the country, from red states like Kentucky to one of the bluest cities of all, New York, officials are ordering the release of some inmates as a way of slowing the spread of COVID-19. Just today, New Jersey is planning to release a thousand low-level offenders. And activists are pushing for even more. So I get it. During a crisis, everybody's wondering, why do we care about people in jail or people in prison? That's Holly Harris, president of the Justice Action Network, a bipartisan criminal justice reform group. The reality is that incarceration facilities are hotbeds for spread of the coronavirus, much like nursing homes. Because we have mass incarceration and we have people who are basically stacked on top of each other in jails and prisons like sardines, if and when the virus invades jails or prisons, it's going to spread like hot fire through a dry barn. And then obviously that is going to make the correctional officers and law enforcement who guard them susceptible to the virus, and then they'll carry it to their surrounding communities. Harris has called for reducing the U.S. prison population for a while. But COVID-19 is making this all the more urgent, as states like California and Georgia start recording more infections among prisoners. That's especially concerning for inmates who are older. Older people are at higher risk of having serious complications from COVID-19. Last week, more than 40 groups, including Harris's, wrote to Senate leaders asking them to amend the First Step Act. That's the big bipartisan criminal justice law from 2018. These groups are calling for the Senate to allow more older inmates to serve out the rest of their terms in home confinement, rather than in prison. And they want the Senate to pass this fix for elderly prisoners now, and include it in its big COVID-19 response bill. As it is, prisons are already shutting down education programs and banning family visits. So Harris says getting more inmates out of those prisons now is just the right thing to do. This crisis is likely to stretch months. And so we're talking about a lot of people who are going to be isolated from their family members and really from anyone for months at a time with no programming. And I I just want folks to consider what that would do to a person's mental health and what's going to happen when these people are ultimately released, because they will be. The Senate is reportedly close to finalizing its COVID-19 response bill, so we should know soon whether Congress feels the same way. Which brings us to our third big story of the day. You might remember yesterday, President Trump hinted that he might be considering rolling back the White House's social distancing guidelines. Today, during a town hall on Fox News, he did more than hint. So I would love to have the country opened up and they're just raring to go by Easter. That's April 12th, two and a half weeks from now. The reason? You're gonna lose a number of people to the flu, but you're gonna lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession or depression. You're gonna lose people. You're gonna have suicides by the thousands. You're gonna have all sorts of things happen. He didn't offer any evidence for that. Meanwhile, public health experts are warning against ending social distancing restrictions too soon. Just today, Wisconsin joined the growing list of states telling residents to stay home. And yesterday was the first time the number of deaths in the U.S. entered triple digits in one day. Trump says he'll wait to reevaluate the White House's social distancing restrictions until next Monday, once they've been in place for 15 days. But he said Americans can probably expect them to stay in place a little longer than that. That's not a clear deadline, but here's what we are clear on. This concept of the cure being worse than the problem has become a big talking point for Trump over the last two days. Meanwhile, health experts have been making a different point. 
Not long after Trump's comments today, the three big associations representing America's hospitals, doctors, and nurses asked Americans to not turn the page on social distancing just yet, saying, quote, physicians, nurses, and healthcare workers are staying at work for you. Please stay at home for us. Coming up, what's it like to vote during a pandemic? We're finding out now. That's next. You may find that lately, given everything, it's hard to keep track of what day it is. So PSA, it's Tuesday, which means it's time for our 2020 Tuesday check-in. In a parallel universe, we might be talking about Georgia's primary. Voters there were supposed to head to the polls today, but then... Georgia is the second state to postpone a 2020 presidential primary due to the coronavirus pandemic. State elections officials saying tonight the primaries will now be moved from March 24th to May 19th. This happening after Governor Kemp declared a public health emergency and President Trump declared a national emergency. A bunch of other states have followed that lead and postponed their own primaries this year. We've seen officials do this before. For example, in 1918, the Spanish flu was ravaging the country during the midterm elections, but the polls still opened. Depending on where they lived, voters might have had to wear masks or wait in a single file line. Then there was September 11th, 2001. That was primary day for New York's mayoral race. And the election was moved to two weeks later after the attacks on the World Trade Center buildings. As recently as a couple weeks ago, a tornado hit Tennessee the morning of its presidential primary. Officials decided to keep the polls open a little bit later than normal that day. But that got us thinking. Could COVID-19 possibly affect this year's November election? Princeton University history professor Julian Zelizer says, all of those historical examples we just listed should make us optimistic. Our democratic systems really endured an amazing number of crises uh, that we've gone through, public health, national security, and others, uh, where we don't abandon this voting moment. And uh, I'm hoping that is true again today. But the general election is also a totally different ballgame than a primary or local election. That November election day can't be moved so easily. You see, federal law says that election day has to be on the Tuesday after the first Monday of November. So Congress would have to pass a bill and then the president would have to sign it in order to move that election. And even if election day is moved, the Constitution says the president's term is up on January 20th. So the election would have to happen before then. Otherwise, we would need to amend the Constitution. And that's a really long process that hasn't happened since 1992. So as of now, the show must go on. But fortunately, there are some options to make Election Day a little bit easier on everyone, given the outbreak. Here's Zelizer again. Uh, If Congress would act, if if, if states would act, if we kind of get our act together now uh, with things like paper uh, voting uh, through through regular mail, early voting mechanisms where you don't have to appear uh, in place, we just have greater capacity now. to handle this, even though it's a a much bigger operation because it's presidential rather than midterm. Some lawmakers are already working on it. Last week, two Democratic senators introduced the Natural Disaster and Emergency Ballot Act, which increases the opportunities for early voting and voting by mail. And local and state officials on both sides of the aisle are already pushing for more funding to help expand early voting. In the meantime, the next Democratic primaries are scheduled for April 4th in Wyoming, Hawaii, and Alaska. 
all three states are switching to vote by mail only. Though for now, these primaries are still happening. But keep in mind, lately it feels like every day a new state is pressing the pause button. So things could still change. If you're getting tired of all the pasta and canned beans you panic bought at the supermarket a couple weeks ago, one listener called in with an important reminder. If this does get on the air, I want everybody to make sure that you are, if you can, tipping your delivery drivers because this is kind of scary to be going out and about. This is Rebecca. She's a delivery driver in Florida, and she's working a lot these days. It feels good to be able to help people who can't leave their homes and shouldn't leave their homes. Uh, be able to bring them freshly cooked food instead of the canned stuff they were able to get at Walmart. She isn't interacting directly with her customers anymore, but she's still worried about her health. And workers like her definitely deserve a bonus tip for their service. Thanks for the work you're doing, Rebecca, and thanks to everyone else who's already called in. Our phone number is in our show notes, so give us a call and leave us a voicemail. We want to hear how you're finding ways to help others during this time, and we might feature your call on the show. And that's all for Skim This. Remember, we want to hear your messages for your loved ones that you can't physically meet up with right now. So give us a call at 646-461-6370 and leave us a voicemail. Or DM us on Instagram at The Skim, and we might share your message on an upcoming episode. Don't forget, if you aren't signed up yet for our free morning newsletter, The Daily Skim, you can do so on our website at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox.